this is record producer Nick Lornay. I've made records with Nick Cave, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Arcade Fire, Amel and the Sniffers, and in 1983, I produced and recorded The Swing. You are listening to In Excess, Access All Areas. Access All Areas, episode 121, the podcast that dives deep into all things great about this in excess band, get them into the Rock Hall of Fame, do it with a bunch of loyal patrons and listeners, but most importantly, do it with my friend B. Hello, how are you? Aren't you excited? You're about to go on holiday soon, aren't you? Well, I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> well, through the, through the modern technicalities of uh, editing, mm-hmm. we are very, very excited to do a very unique show today. So mm. we're not going to go on about all the news, all of our waffle. No. This might be the most most uh, interesting show we've had for a while because uh-huh. we have a very special guest that we uh, have had a chance to speak to and we're going to be bringing him in for a double episode, and that is the inimitable Mr. Nick Lornay, mm-hmm. uh, a gentleman who is synonymous with the swinger Open for NXS, but uh, obviously is more known uh, in certain circles for his work lately with Peaky Blinders, his work with Nick Cave, his original work with Midnight Oil, The Models, uh, Silverchair. Um, he was a tour de force and a, an English producer who found himself in Australia in the early 80s, stayed here for a long time, but now has obviously moved over to uh, LA where I guess he gets the best of Australian acts, the best of UK acts and the best of American acts that he looks after. And uh, let's just say that um, our listeners are in for a treat today because we do go to some very, very interesting areas, Pete. The absolute treat this is. Um, like he's up there with as probably my favourite guest now, listening to him. Yep. You will want to listen to it a couple of times because he's just so engaging. He's got such great stories. Just keep with it, everybody, because just like right to the end, he's very compelling. He, and it's, yeah, and he's very relaxed as well, isn't he? Um, it's, yeah. it's fun. Yeah. It's a really fun episode. So you are going to have like a double whammy of this because we're coming back next week. Even more. Well, without further ado, let's hand over to the fantastic Mr. Nick Lornay and welcome to NXS Access Hilarious. Pleasure today. Welcome, Nick Lornay, to In Excess Access All Areas. I feel, Nick, you are almost an honorary Australian. I'm, I'm looking at your uh, amount of influence of, of uh, bands and people you've worked with here, uh, and the fact that you've just told us before we recorded your children live in the city of Melbourne, Australia. Um, you yeah. must feel a connection with this country, I guess. I feel very Australian. I definitely yeah. feel Australian. I mean, I, I um, you know, I first found out about Australian stuff through uh, Nadia Anderson, who yes. who we ended up getting married and having two wonderful kids. And uh, that was back in 1980-ish, 80, 81. Yes. And she was the first person who played me in excess and Midnight Oil. Yes. And I ended up working with Midnight Oil because they were in uh, London at the time. And um, yeah, so, so the whole thing kind of unfolded from that. I was I was uh, twenty or twenty one at the time. Yeah, and and it was I obviously followed your career as a uh, 
as a person probably not too much younger than you, but uh, as a kid at high school, uh, when liner notes on albums and tapes were very, very much the forte, every band I liked, be it the models, um, you know, Midnight Oil, you know, Nick Cave, uh, Big Pig, you know, In Excess, it just had this name Nick Lorne on there. And in those days, in a less media sort of uh, pop-up Insta world, your name was sort of just like like this name, like Mark Opitz. We just saw it everywhere in Australia. And we knew it was a good album if the name Nick Lorne or Mark Opitz were on it. Well, that's, that's lovely to hear. Um, I, I, yeah, I think what happened was, you know, I did... I did that album 1098 with Midnight Oil and, and yeah. they they took a huge risk. The only things I'd produced up to that point were all English uh, bands, but they're all very, well, it was the post-punk era, I suppose. So it was Public Image, Gang of Four, Killing Joke, uh, and I had, and Kate Bush and, and the birthday party. Mm-hmm. So it was all very... Uh, I guess uh, darker, more underground, if you like. And obviously, Midnight Oil were more of a uh, a bigger rock band, but in Australia only. They weren't known outside Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met them through, like I said, like through Nadia Anderson, and um, they took you know took the risk because i was 20 or 21 at that time yeah. maybe, maybe just turned 21 and and it worked it just worked they wanted to make an adventurous album and i uh only knew how to do kind of one thing uh which was what i was into because i was very young i'd grown up through the punk thing in england and saw all those punk bands and then we were just getting into you know new wave and then you know what's what's now called post-punk so it, it just worked and i think because the album was so noticeable in in australia that's why in excess thought who is this guy what, yeah. what's going on there i actually met uh michael tim and kirk from memory it was th- those three they came down to the studio when i was in in Sydney at a, at a studio called Platinum with the models and they were friends very close friends with the models and so they came down and, and that's when they first walked in and all I knew about them was that there were posters all around Sydney that said Inks and I probably <laughs> didn't even know how to pronounce it mm-hmm. because they'd had a fair amount of success it already in Australia and yeah. I think No Change was a big hit in, uh, in America yeah. Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah. I think they, they around Shibu, that time. Yeah, Shabu Shabar had taken off here, but there was still yeah. a, a triple R sort of uh, uh, or a double J at the time uh, band. And mm. Murphy said, let's go to America and tour it. And they were able to get a hit with the one thing. Yeah. So you met in excess in 84, is that right? It would have been 82. 82. Yeah, yeah 82. I, I'm going to say 82. I mean, it was whenever. I would have to look at when I made the models Plus, record. Yeah, I think 83 was when For Your Pleasure came out. Yeah, so it's probably 82 because that album took quite a long time to, to okay. finish. And, and that's right. And I think, you know, we're going to get into the swing, but one thing we like to do particularly, I guess, for, uh, you know, you know, well-credentialed, but also, you know, successful, you know, auteurs of their craft is just acknowledge, you know, for some of our listeners who may be very in excess-centric, but just sort of share some of the sort of production notes you have and, um, I guess everyone from Pill to, you know, Gang of Four through The Killing Joke, uh, of which Youth went on to, re- you know, produce stuff, I think, Cratted House. He's worked with Paul McCartney, um, you know, Pink Floyd. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. name it. He's gone on to do great things. And I'm, I'm still in touch with him, actually. He's yeah. he's great. He's really great. You know, I, I really haven't stopped since no. then. I mean, it's been 40-odd years now. Because we've seen your name on the Peaky Blinders um, running on there. My husband went, yes. what? You're speaking to Nick, <laughs> like, cause he, My husband's massive, um, massive um, Nick K fan, and he's been seeing your name. Right. Went, yeah, I know. I've got brownie points today from the husband. That's a whole... <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole new thing that's mm. just opened up for me because um, I, 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 I did an album with Anna Calvi, mm. who's an English artist, a yeah. fantastic uh, singer, 
guitar player. And she basically brought me in to do this season. And then due to COVID and time and, and also she's had a baby, I ended up taking over and doing a, a lot of it. So it's it's me and her. Um, but it's opened up a whole world for me in, in composing now. So I, I can now go on and do films, which is really fun. But Nick, it's incredible. Mm. I love it. The atmosphere of the uh, footage, it just brings it even more so. It's so fantastic. Will you go into films now, do you think? Oh, great. <laughs> well, that's what that's what I'm doing now because, I, and I've wanted to do that for a long time. It's just, uh, it's it's a very hard thing to do to make the transition you know, from from making rock records to that. But I think the Peaky Blinders thing was perfect because they had quite a lot of songs I'd produced on it anyway over over the various seasons. And it is, it is musically, it is kind of that era of post-punk. You know, an album I did recently is with a, a, a band from Bristol called, called The Idols. Their music is in Peaky Blinders quite a bit. So, and then of course, there's the Nick Cave stuff and... I think uh, it's interesting to talk about going to the composing side. Stuart Copeland, obviously from the police, uh, many years ago went down that pathway and I think found it quite rewarding. I guess it's a another chapter to say, you know, your musical um, interest, I guess, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just fun doing new things, yes. you know, always. And um, so I don't know what, what's going to quite, quite what, what's going to happen next. Back, back on the swing. It was really, uh, it was really quite an amazing time because we're all about the same age. <laughs> so it was a bit like it was a bit like kids let loose in in, in the studio, you know. Well, there's a um, there's a lo lovely photo, I, I guess, and we will talk, you know, about your contribution, which mm -hmm. was really the most contribution. But it's a lovely photo of. Um, the band, I think, when they did the uh, you know Daryl Hall backup vocals on Original Sin, all sitting next oh, to yeah, Daryl, yeah, yeah. they look so young, you know the yeah, the ages yeah. and the faces, you know, which I guess uh, reflected what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. They came over to England to do the record, and we started it at the Manor Studios, which belonged to Virgin. Uh, well, belonged to Richard Branson, and yes. it, it was the middle of winter. So that, that they and their families, and and there was, um, I remember Tim Ferriss had a, a little kid. Uh, he was just, you know, probably two or three. There are lots of pictures somewhere of us at the manor, and there's all this snow. And I remember Tim actually decided to walk across this lake, which was um, extremely dangerous. Oh. Uh, but he was very gung-ho. You know, when you're young, you do crazy things. We Australians do that sort of stuff, yeah. But he made it to, he made it to the other side. So. Sounds like Tim. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like Tim. I obviously made it without any uh, hiccups or... <laughs> yep, yep. He got, got to the other, other side. and um, But, yeah, it, it was really fun. We did, um, you know, most of the recording. In fact, yeah, all the backing tracks were done at the manor. Then, then we flew all the way to Sydney and did a lot of overdubs at their studio, which is called Rhinoceros mm -hmm. Studios. Um, this was before, I don't know if people are familiar with Rhinoceros, but um, it, it, originally it was up on, I don't know, fourth or fifth floor mm. of this building. Um, and lots of great records were made there, and then it then it moved to the basement. Well, yeah, the band ended up buying that, I think, or owning that mm. studio with Mark Opitz, I think. Uh, That's yeah. right. That's right. And it was in the ASIO building, which oh. is quite interesting. <laughs> Always wondered if we were being 
being listened to. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things we we, we're really looking forward to talking about is sort of the production, you know, um, you know, style that you have. And you know, I I know uh, in the early days, uh, Mark Opitz worked with uh, Vander and Young quite a bit uh, for Elvis there, and he um, he he was basically told by George Young and uh, Harry Van to go, listen, we've got this band. We haven't got time to produce their second album. We don't know if we're going to keep them or not, but here's, here's a go for you. And that was the Angels. Right. Wow. And he had uh, gone in to record that after working on Power Age and things like that. And he was just a young producer. And I do notice through um, uh, a little bit of research, you had some, um, I guess, pedigree with uh, Tony Visconti from Bowie's fame. I think Steve Lilly White yeah. from Simple Minds and U2 and many others. And Hugh Padgham, who's, um, I guess those three must have uh, informed or must have learned a lot hanging out with them. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it- it was just one of those great things that, that, that you know, sometimes we're very lucky that we're at the right place at the right time. But the, really the first proper recording studio I worked at was the Townhouse, which is in, was in Goldhawk Road in London. And um, it was a relatively new studio. And I got put on a, a session with Hugh Padgham, engineering and Steve Lillywhite producing. And Steve was already my favorite record producer because I loved what he did with um, Susie and the Banshees in particular. Mm. And um, this particular session was was XTC. It was an album called The Black Sea, yep. which I, I, is one of my favorite records to this day. Um, so that, w- that was the first time I worked with them to, you know, together. So it was like the three of us and it, it just works really. I, I, re- I really liked them and, and I, 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 I must have done the right things, I suppose, because Hugh then kind of took me on as his main assistant. So I learned an incredible amount from Hugh. Um, and Hugh was actually very, very, it was really great to me because Midnight Oil, when they came to England looking for a producer, they actually wanted Hugh. And Hugh was already had become really successful as a producer and was doing the police so he couldn't do it he mm. suggested me and then they kind of went oh hang on a minute that's nadia anderson's boyfriend who they knew ah, so this crazy okay. thing that happened <laughs> but yeah i i did um and you know, of course that led led to all, all the other australian bands but but um yeah i mean i learned a lot from watching steve lillywhite and um you know, and I only worked with Tony Visconti once. It was a very, like, just a couple of days. But he's he's definitely one of my other biggest influences. I mean, I just love all, pretty much everything. Yeah, there was. I was very lucky at the townhouse because there was a lot of, lot of great record producers there. You know, Chris Kimsey was there too, so I learned from him and Vic Coppersmith Heaven. I mean, there was just so many and I, I was, you know, it, it was a crazy amount of work and you'd have, there's two, there was two recording studios originally, then a third one. And as an assistant, you just go between them and, you know, I ended up working with Queen and the Jam. And, I, you know, I saw all these great records from the early 80s being made. And of course, it, it all, you know, when you're that young, because mm-hmm. I was 21, around, around that time, it all went in. And then, you know, I started bringing bands in to work like the whole thing with the birthday party with nick cave ivo who owned four ad records had bought them over to do a couple of gigs in london nobody had ever heard of them at all Hmm. but they apparently heard the flowers of romance with uh public image public image record and that was the only record they liked and that they (laughs) they apparently said to him you know we don't want to work with anybody except whoever did the flowers of romance so it was okay. organized that we would do two songs um and uh had this great conversation with ivo he sent me a, a, a live recording of the release the bats which was the main song we were doing and i just loved it and um you know townhouse was pretty expensive so it was a bit of a struggle for 480 to pay the daily rate uh, and I said, well, you know, I can get it cheaper if we start at midnight because yes. nobody's using that time. And he said, well, that'd be fantastic because they're really nocturnal people. <laughs> so be- bear in mind, I'd never seen 
what the birthday party looked like. Mm -hmm. So I was actually assisting on another session during the day. Let, let's just say it could have been Phil Collins or something like that as an assistant, right? Yeah. And then at night, I knew I was going to work through the night with this band. And the phone rang. I picked it up and it was a reception. And the receptionist, her name was Penny, said, um, Hey, Nick, uh, I think one of your bands has arrived. Uh, can you come up and get them? Because they're scaring everybody up here. <laughs> so, uh, uh, up I went. And sure enough, there they were, all wearing kind of black mm. and suits. And their hair was completely disheveled. You know, big hair, you know, very much like the cure mm. uh, kind of thing. Uh, and uh, they all looked really ill. You know, they had this absolute, like, pale, Gaunt. you know, they looked like vampires. <laughs> and sure enough, we started at midnight and we were doing this song called Release the Bats. You know, so we recorded Release the Bats and then um, the what was the B-side of that single, which is called Blast Off. We did that all in one night. And then, again, I went back to work the next day, had to assist someone else then come back in and mix the whole song Gosh. the following night so it just took two nights it's, it, but you know when you're that when you're that young you can and enthusiastic it. you, you, you mm. can do it mm. you can do it mm. yeah and um yeah that was that was i mean that's and that track release the bats i mean it is one of the you know most well-known and best songs that the birthday party did and there are gothic nightclubs all over the world called Release the Bats. I mean, there's, there's one here in LA. I know there was another one. God, where was it? It was somewhere odd I heard about. Somewhere like, like in Athens or something. Yeah. Somewhere crazy like that. And it's funny that, you know, songs, you know, to get chart success, but songs that just have a sort of a cultural zeitgeist mm. uh, manner to them mm. just still resonate 40-something years later, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and then 20, 20 years went by from doing that birthday party EP to me then working with the Bad Seeds. Um, yes. I mean, Nick, Nick, Nick and they all went off to Berlin. I actually went to Australia, so we didn't see each other. Uh, and then I I connected in Melbourne with um, Mick Harvey. We were both working at Sing Sing Studios, which is a great recording studio there in Melbourne. And we bumped into each other and he, he sort of vaguely recognised me. I, I recognised him. And we just started talking and he actually was very keen on me working with PJ Harvey who he'd been producing and he said he, he wanted uh, to be a musician again and not produce and maybe I should do, do a PJ Harvey record and that he tried to organize that and that never happened but what ended up happening is that he said, oh, well, come and, come and help us with the Bad Seeds. And that ended up me doing, I think, eight records mm -hmm. with, with Nick. I mean, two, two Grinder Man records and, you know, uh, quite a few Bad Seeds records, you know. Is that how Nick and uh, PJ Harvey met, I think? Maybe through yourself there? Uh, or oh, no, no. I, I don't know PJ. I mean, I've met PJ a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, Polly, I, I, yeah. I really like her. I think she's yeah. great, but I've never worked with her. Mm. Okay. That was So that was before the, when Polly and Nick were together. That was a yeah. couple of years before I worked with the Bad Seeds. So one of one of the interesting things, just looking at sort of the albums and the body of work, and you know, you know, I think I, I look at every artist on the list, you know, and there's hundreds that you've worked with, whether it's on a production note or a, a well, a, a full production credit or a mixing aspect of it all, but. I don't see too many sellout artists there who uh, you would have to cringe about going to work with. I mean, do, how do you pick who you work with? Is it, is it the song, the artist? I mean, the, the, I mean, everyone from David Byrne to, you know, Talking yeah. Heads, Killing Jones. I mean, there's just so many so quality many, artists. Yeah. You know, how does it come to be that, you know? Well, I, I definitely am very, um, I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's a picky thing, but I just don't really connect with artists that are, bands that have been put together so to speak so they're all all real bands mm. uh real artists who write their own songs i think i think it has to do, just my my taste in mm -hmm. music is is that and it, it and it's it's i guess it's very left of center so it's if it's rock it's definitely not you know the big 
Bubblegum, uh, sort yeah. of, yeah. you know, like like it's it's not Bon Jovi. It's no. it's it's the other way. Yes. So so, Good. and I think also the reason that this happens is that bands get influenced by other bands and and their choices of producer. So, for instance. Because, like, like I said, because I did Public Image, that that led to working with the Birthday Party, and and so on. And now, if you look at right now, uh, in the recent years, um, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, for instance, I've done a couple of albums with the Yeah Yeahs, and they yeah. they saw my name on the back of the Public Image record and the Gang of Four record, and so on. And she's so got that, that charisma that, of Susie and the Banshees, hasn't mm, she? That, yeah. Um, well, it's uh, you, you know, know we're we're all influenced by a fe- a feeling. Really, it's all mm. you know. Music is all about mood and feeling. That's really, really what it's all about, more than anything. And so, if if you've made a couple of records that that move those type of musicians and songwriters, they're going to find you, you know, and like Anna Calvi, for instance, she, she just told me that she kept seeing my name on the back of these records. And some of them were from the eighties, some of them were th- from the nineties. And then some of them were <laughs> in the, in the two thousands, you know, and then she got in touch and, uh, you know, her favorite album was was the flowers of romance, which was you know made before she was born, mm-hmm. you know. But also, you know, like even without Amel and the Sniffers, it's like they, uh, you know, they're very young. Obviously, a lot of those records that I made were way before they were born. It's still that same aesthetic of of that punk rock type music, um, and you know, I think they're their managers who who are obviously older had were aware that I'd made these kind of really raw yeah. sounding real records that really are, are all about capturing a band in a room together which which is true i mean that's probably the most consistent thing you could say about the bands i've worked with they're 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 all real they write their own songs and they all have an identity and a and a kind of image and what i do is I'm I'm very much about you know getting to know them, going to their gigs, feeding off of what the image they have, the feeling you get from their music, and just exaggerating it. And and I see that, that it's my role to capture what they are doing mm-hmm. as a band, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I always record in really good sort of analog recording studios where you have a big a big enough room so the whole band can be in the same room looking at each other and I set it up quite meticulously so they've their headphones are great I always want it to feel like they're in a rehearsal room like it's just fun and they're just being creative and there's no technical problems you know I tend to pick, pick my studios very carefully and I tend to go in and set them up before the band arrive so that when they arrive they're just coming in and they're like athletes, you know. They've, you know, maybe we've we've done a bit of pre-production and rehearsed the songs in a rehearsal studio for a week or two. Depends on the band, uh, but but usually it's like by the time you get to the studio, everything's set up, and they come in and they just play, and it's all about capturing them. In the overdubs is where you start getting into the production of things, and then I do a lot in the mix as well I have a I guess a sort of process that I go through with most bands that is it's very old school it's very much how records were made back in the 70s probably even 60s in excess made you think yeah this is the band I want to work with I think you know the biggest thing that that made me want to work with them was actually Sean Kelly from the models and him going on and on about oh you know they've got this great singer and he's got a very low voice and he's charismatic and he's like you know he's a bit like Mick Jagger but he's you know he's 
but they're great and the drummer just is great groove and they need to make a dance record. It was his enthusiasm and, and James Freud. They were both sort of big fans of the band, but they also, you know, said, have a listen to this. Because I, when I heard In Excess the first time, I did think they were a little straight, a bit straightforward, like kind of a rock band just doing rock music. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't feel that they were super original. I guess I felt like I'd heard it before. They were a little bit like the Rolling Stones, but they weren't as raw as the Rolling Stones. They didn't groove as much. When I then heard some of the demos, I was like, oh, great. You know, they're going in that more kind of dancey. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of funk there. And they were hugely influenced by Talking Heads, which was Mm -hmm. was my favorite band Mm -hmm. at the time, and and XTC. So suddenly when when we actually met and started talking music, it's like our influences were the same. Mm-hmm. And Michael Michael was actually the one who was the most sort of in tune with sort of left field music. Like he knew the Gang of Four. Yeah. He loved the Gang of Four. You know, the rest of the band all kind of were more more talking heads and next TC. So that I think if you listen to the swing and then listen to talking heads and you'll, you'll see how there's this connection there. And also early simple minds, not, not the simple minds that did, you know, don't you forget about yeah, me. That, that was later. Empire and dance and sons and fascination. That's exactly, yeah. well, actually yeah, that's like spot on. Empire yeah. of dance was like, is one of my favorite records of all time. It's probably their least successful, but it is, it grooves. And I remember we were all really into that record. I worked on that record as an assistant with uh, John Leckie. He was another one, another record producer that I was hugely influenced by. Um, and he, he is amazing, you know, like, he, you know, when you look at the records that John Leckie did, you know, he did a couple of, um, God, my brain is going. <laughs> I was thinking your brain's on fire oh, myself. Sorry. I was like, all these <laughs> Well, I just sort of had a, a blank Your there. ability to read, uh, just for our listeners, Nick's not looking at notes, no. by the way. This is all coming yeah. from the noggin, you know. Amazing. So much information. <laughs> No, well, you'll great. have to do an edit there. <laughs> oh, <yuck laughs> what, I was, what I was trying to say is Radiohead. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you go back and he worked with all these great bands around 1979. I mean, Magazine, yes. absolutely incredible television, stuff. Television, maybe and, as well. Uh, yeah. Did he work with them? I think he might have done television. Yeah. But I remember Magazine and then I remember Early Simple Minds. And uh, that that was just um, you know it was amazing working. He, he was quite a quiet person, you know. He was like he was always up at the desk. He didn't say much. He just did all these things, put lots of delays on things, and had all these kind of triple delays going on drums and vocals. He'd make these rhythms up, and I, it was hugely influential to, to to me to watch him to watch him work. Mm. Yeah, looking at your catalogue, and um, we're going to uh, um, delve into the swing there, but um, one of the things which is interesting that most of the artists you work with, uh, particularly in Australia, and I can speak from sort of a, a home front point of view, is that you took bands that were on the cusp of maybe breaking out, and the albums that you produced, I mean, 10 to 1 and The Swing are probably always voted in these, and with Black, Back in Black are probably those top three or four albums on any Australian chart. And right. Um, <laughs> yes. They played relentlessly every day, and, you know, the, the, the depth of songs on both The Swing and... Uh, uh, Ten to one, Ten, yeah. It's all killer, no filler on those albums. Mm. And I'm looking they're, at everything. They're just great records, you know. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. I think Mid- Midnight Oil, I think, are about to do Ten Nine Eight live from beginning to end as one of yeah. their last concerts that they ever yeah. do. I don't know if it's in Melbourne or Sydney. Well, they are. They've I just think been that's on coming up, touring up into Melbourne very soon. Yeah, and yeah, to, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Palais Theatre and I, I mean, that record, you know, that record, like I said, is the first album where I was employed 100% as a record producer. And I was 21, just turned 21. And that album was incredible because you've got these great musicians, I mean, phenomenal musicians, mm-hmm. some of the best musicians that will ever exist, yeah. you know. And they had this incredible open mind that they wanted to do something different and adventurous. And they found me and I 
was doing weird music. I mean, if you look at the records I was making before 1098, it really was, well, there was the, the, the Dreaming with Kate Bush, which is a very bizarre record. Yeah. It's not a commercial record. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it has become a commercial record, you know, and then of course, Birthday Party, you know, and um, even like bands like Virgin Prunes, who were you know an Irish band? That, again, are like a, yeah, they're they're well, they're they're. There's a song called uh, "Pagan Love Song," which is honestly one of the most important gothic anthems of all time if you really get into goth music so i had just done that you know and i remember when um midnight oil in london it was a couple of them rob jim and 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 peter i remember came to my apartment i was still living with my mum uh you know my mum and my brother and i had this room and the carpet was this fluorescent green i was like a punk you know i had spiky hair and this was 1980 so i was still i still looked like a, a sort of punk rocker and i played them all this stuff that i'd just done i mean there was a combination of like what the hell is this uh, and I mean, Jim loved it. You know, Jim Magini just absolutely loved it. Rob, I think at the time was a bit like, well, this is fantastic, but it, it doesn't sound anything like Midnight Midnight Oil. How's this going to work? <laughs> but then it was like, they gave me the chance. They yeah. really did take a huge risk with me. And they did have a backup plan. The backup plan was to wait for Hugh Padgham. And so there was this discussion of that about that. But we went in and, you know, I think the first day we did you know, US forces or something like that. And it just worked. It was like we met in this perfect middle place where they were doing this really high powered kind of rock music, but it was very clever and it, you know, had odd, odd time signatures. And I had all these ideas about how to, uh, how to fuck it up, Sonic, <laughs> basically, how to, how to yeah. make it, how to make it sound weird there's so many twists and turns on the production on that album it's still yeah you know just the little flourishes that i almost like the swing and and, and tina have these nick lornate little flourishes on there that, <laughs> that still sound great you know like in the car we're air drumming to all of these songs you know these little hooks yeah well the dr- drummers on both both you know obviously you know john yeah. from Inic says is an f- absolutely incredible mm. drummer i mean he just grooves and he you know all of his drum fills are very they're very, very distinctive to him. And, you know, I, I was really into the big drum sounds, which is why, you know, like songs like Melting in the Sun have that big drum sound yes. and Johnson's Aeroplane and all those songs. I mean, I, I was probably pushing them more to the left. And then, you know, uh, then, then they probably <laughs> needed to be, because obviously they, they went on to sort of be this huge pop rock band you know mm-hmm. but yeah it's it, it just worked that that album i mean it certainly connected in australia didn't it, it just, oh yeah, that, yeah. The swing was just uh you know yeah as it's it's definitely some people's favorite in excess record 100 oh, you know? and it, look it just broke them through in a commercial sense they had a number one hit with uh obviously original sin and then the other other singles from it but i'm interested to sort of know coming out of england uh, to this sort of little island down in Australia. I mean, there must be some parallels between the 70s punk movement in, in Australia. And, you know, down here, there was such a thirst for live music and being in a band and the Melbourne and Sydney rivalry. And, I mean, was it a bit of an eye when you got here and go, wow, there's a fair bit of talent down here that I... Oh, know, God, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, the first time I came to Australia was... You know, so I'd done 1098, but I'd never been to Australia. Hmm. And I'd heard about things from the guys in in Midnight Oil, you know. I remember all kinds of crazy expressions. If you can imagine this, finished the album and it was time to mix it. Well, the band went back to Australia, but Peter stayed to help me mix. And I remember mixing only the strong and it was on these huge speakers and it's got all the all the crazy drum fills and it's it's a it's an incredibly powerful groove and rock song and it's it's bizarre in its arrangement i remember finishing that and he said uh he, he said uh, wait till the folks back in malambimbi hear this and i thought <laughs> What's malambimbi <laughs> that sounds like a made-up word and it was like this to me it was a bit like um xanadu 
you know, there's like, yeah. does it, is it a real word? Is it a real place? And, and, you know, so eventually, of course, I end up in Malabimbi and thought, ah, this is what he meant. I'm in the sun. But anyway, yeah, so I, 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 the models reached out. In fact, it was um, Michael Gadinsky. I think heard 1098 and of course it went to whatever number one or two in, in the charts and he knew Nadia Anderson because uh, she was you know on, on Triple R as a DJ in Melbourne and so the connection came through through Nadia oh there's this band called The Models and I heard their you know two cabs to the two can and happy birthday idea and i just thought they were great <laughs> you know and and so they well mushroom records flew me to australia mm-hmm. and that's that was the first time that i saw what australia really is and just loved it mm-hmm. so we went to melbourne first then went up to sydney and then we started doing the models album you know i hear motion and all that and that and that's yeah that that's what led to the the excess connection yeah i met them when they came down to the studio and then it was probably about 6 months later that they asked me to do their record and this is just I, sort of yeah, dichotomy yeah. or a di- you know digression between the Melbourne scene and the Sydney scene. Melbourne was sort of yeah. uh, a bit dark and gloomy and punkish with you know hun- hunters and yeah. collectors and Nick Cave and um, uh, I guess you know the, the birthday party there along with uh, um, you know the models coming out of there. We had Sydney and they had the sort of midnight oil and NXS from the northern beaches and uh, um, there was an interesting sort of I guess disparity between the two rivalrous cities. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely remember thinking Melbourne was more arty and it was, you know, it was colder and it reminded me a little bit of London. Um, and then I got to Sydney and it's just this incredibly beautiful place. You know, it's, it's not, it, it's almost like a different country to Melbourne. It's like, yeah. it's all the water. I actually grew up in Spain, in the south of Spain. So yes. I grew up right on the uh, on, on the Mediterranean, and uh, Sydney to me connected me with with uh, the place I, a place called Nerja, where I grew up. It had a lot of similarities in that there's you know beautiful beaches and there's just a lot of wildlife, and it, it, it's a different feeling. So I really connected with Melbourne and Sydney equally, but for different reasons you know became became really really great friends the guys from Inexcess were were my best friends you know for years and years and years even all the way through their huge success when they were touring America I would often meet up with them you know during the kick they were great you know yeah, and I think one of the things that's just come across through the different people we've spoken to over time is that, you know, the band themselves, you know, have always been quite upbeat, positive people, never had their heads up their asses, and maybe it's the Australian way or sensibility. I think it is the Australian way. <laughs> the yes. Australian, the Australian yes. way is fantastic. Like, my kids are Australian, and they're yeah. so beautiful and so down-to-earth, and yes. I'm so glad that they grew up in in Australia, you know, yeah. it's it's a, just a wonderful, wonderful country. It really is. And your, um, you know, uh, sort of success, sort of evolving from there, you know, to working with different bands and things. I mean, you know, within excess, you mentioned, and I believe I heard you in an interview say that maybe about a month before Michael sadly passed, you got to see them in Minneapolis, I think, and. Catch up with the band. Is that right? Oh, cool. Yeah, I was work. Yeah, I was working with a, a New York band called Girls Against Boys. Yeah, who are actually you know very influenced by Gang of Four, very rhythmic yeah. sort of band. This was like uh, very uh, oh god, when is it? It was in the nineties, maybe. Um, yeah, I, it, and I was 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 there for about two months working yeah. with them and i saw these posters around minneapolis saying in excess and i thought it was great and i you know I, I said to the band hey look i really need to have this evening off so i can go and see in excess and they, they went oh my god we love in excess can we go too <sighs> so yeah. I, I i managed to get in touch with 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 in excess and they put us all on the list and i can't tell you it we went to the gig it was 
extraordinary. I mean, they were so good. The weren't it wasn't like sold out. Mm. I mean, this was at a period where mm. in excess, you know, like that's that's what happened. I mean, let, mm. let's put things in, in perspective, right? Correct, yeah. So uh David Bowie at around that same time mm-hmm. was supporting Moby. Yeah. He was the yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all the 80s stuff that was so big, it became like, oh, that's that's old music. Yeah, We're not yeah. interested now. Yeah. So yeah. all those bands, all those great bands, slid you know, under. kind of, mm. but yeah, they were, they were slid, but they were still popular. Mm. And it was only later that suddenly they all came back again. Oh, no. You know, can you imagine if Michael, oh God, if Michael was alive, you know, through the now, uh, they, they'd be. Oh, you know, they would be uh, absolutely as big as, yeah. as U2. Of course they would be. Mm-hmm. They, they were as, as big as U2 back then. So they would, it's just that, that period. So anyway, we went to this gig. They were so good. They were as good as I'd ever seen them. Michael was on fire and we all went backstage, me and Girls Against Boys. Now there's four, four guys in Girls Against Boys and they're, they're dashingly handsome and and very <laughs> funny and very witty, very New York. But like honestly, they're just great, witty people. And we got back there, and sure enough, of course, Michael again. He knew Gar- Girls Against Boys. He knew their <laughs> records. Knew he bonded with them mm. immediately. And I think Johnny kind of knew about them. He was always those two were kind of always listening to new music, mm-hmm. and. Anyway, we went back to this hotel as probably like a Holiday Inn or one of those corporate type places. Um, we ended up like everybody was getting kicked out. There was too much noise. <laughs> we met, kept moving from room to room. The security came. The Basically, this insane, absolutely insane party that went all night long uh, happened in, in Michael's hotel room it started off in Johnny's room and then it went to Michael's room and at the end of it I ended up I'm I'm really grateful for this moment I I would say like at 5am I ended up just me and Michael ended up in above his room there was a bedroom his bedroom then it was sort of up some stairs it was sort of separate it was like a loft he he had a a mezzanine and we ended up there just me and him and he told me all this stuff that had happened mm. and that he had, you know, had this accident and then he couldn't uh, taste, he didn't have, you know, his his sense of taste and smell had gone. And he was talking, you know. So it sounded um, like he opened up to uh, you. Oh, completely. It was absolutely incredible. He told me all this stuff, um, you know, um, uh, and it, it was, I, 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 you know, I was, try, I was listening to him and it, he was telling me, you know, how he's very up and enthusiastic and positive person, right? Mm-hmm. But what, some of the stuff he was telling me was really dark and awful, you know. He had- but he was saying it very much like, you know, when you're two friends catching up. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like, I was like, God, are you okay? And then it yeah. sort of turned into this dark moment where he was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not. you know, I'm not okay. And I don't know what to do. And it was all this stuff. And, um, you know, the whole thing with Paula, of course, I, I don't think, God, when was this? I want to say it was before Tiger Lily was born. I can't remember. No, it must have been, she must have been born. I think it was That's 97, right. yeah. I think, from the tour. Because it was, possibly, it was a yeah. couple of months. It was just a yeah. few months. In fact, you know, the person who told me that that Michael had, had passed away was the keyboard player from Girls Against Boys. Oh. Because he's his name's Eli Janney, and he's like quite a famous uh, musician in New York because he's on the... Um, he's on one of these TV shows as the band. Nick, can I ask yeah. then if... In that conversation, and yeah. um, we we had Richard Lowenstein on. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with Richard. And Richard mentioned that Michael was under the impression that the doctors had told him that he wasn't going to get better from the head injury and from the, the what he'd sustained. Did did he mention that at all when he spoke to you, or can you remember? Yes, he did. Yes, he he, he well, he didn't mention that he was 
you know, on all these different antidepressants. He didn't mention that. Mm. What? Yeah, honestly, what he mentioned was that he couldn't taste food. Uh, and, and he did say, I can't, I can't taste Paula's pussy, mm-hmm. which was very Michael thing to yes, say. It would have been. And I was like, yeah. Uh, and he's like, you know, uh, he was talking all about this and I, you know, and it really hit me because I was like, you know, he really was one of these people who enjoyed life. Mm. He enjoyed going to great restaurants. He enjoyed going out to all these parties and, and you know, enjoy, basically, yeah, enjoying the world and life for everything it had. And, and suddenly it's like, if you think about it, two of his senses weren't working anymore. Mm. So when I heard that he had died, and it, and it was possibly suicide. I thought, no way, absolutely no, no way. Mm. This was the, one of the most happy, optimistic mm. people who love life. There's no way he would take his life. But of course, I didn't know that his depression and all this stuff at, at, at home. And it's only mm. later. So, so Richard Lowenstein is, you know, a very close friend of mine and has been since. Melbourne days and you know back then Mm -hmm. we've done a lot of things together he actually Richard actually came and stayed uh, uh, well came came and did all the recording of all the interviews for the movie Mystify at my house with with the with the very same microphone I'm using right now Um, so 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 me and Richard really talked it through I was always around I kept seeing Richard and he Mm -hmm. told me that he was making this movie and uh, so I was very aware of all these interviews that he was doing. And here's the really crazy thing is that he interviewed, as you know, from Mystify, a lot of pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. And one thing kept coming up, and that was that Michael visited people. After after he died, a bunch of us had a, a, a visitation from Michael after he was dead. And it was really over the top for me and I told my story to to Richard and he was like the same thing happened to quite a few people it's the same Um, conversation it's so crazy yeah well basically I was really I was in San Francisco working with a band uh, and this was you know a few years after but not that long you know like uh, and I was really pushing it and I, I wasn't well because I was working too hard and I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't sleeping enough. Basically, my whole neck went out badly and I was ha- having incredible pains down my back and I was just not looking after my health. I was just work, work, work. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of chiropractor, osteopath, masseuse person came up to the studio and was um, manipulating my back. And she said, uh, how open-minded are you? And I said, well, I think I'm a very open-minded person. And she said, well, there's someone in the room with us. So oh. I looked around and there was no one there. And I was really startled. Uh, and I said, like, what do you mean? And she said, no, I don't mean in that way. She says, it's just something that happens when I touch oh, people, that other, other people reach out. And I don't know who this person is. But he's standing there and he's uh, laughing but and he's got a great smile and he he's trying to, you know, tell you something. And I said, well, what is he telling me? He says, well, he said, you just don't push it. Don't push it. Don't, you, 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 you know, you, you could die. Don't push it. And I was like, oh, who is this person? And she said, well, I think his name's Richard. And basically, this 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 woman then t- said that she doesn't know why it's happening, but she, uh, comes when she touches people, people from who are no longer with us get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, God, this is so bizarre. And I said, Well, what does he look like? She says, he's not hasn't got a top on, and he's wearing leather trousers like <laughs> like Jim like Jim Morrison. <laughs> And, and I was like, what? That Jim Morrison? Oh, God, we love and you, Michael. Said, oh, he's got, yeah, he says, she said, he's got a jacket. He's pointing at the jacket and it says something like rich. And as oh. soon as she said rich, I thought, no, it's Hutch. Hutch. 
Do you remember he had that jacket yeah. with studs and it says hutch? Yeah. And yeah. my whole body Oof. turned to liquid and I started bawling. Mm. I just could not stop crying. So that happened, right? And and then the message from him was, don't push it. Um, so I, I told Richard this and he said that, that someone else, I can't remember who it was, there's two other people that were close friends. It might have been like Nick Conroy, someone like that. You know, we're going off on a tangent here from music, but, but no. basically, you know, there's this whole thing out there that if you, if you commit suicide, uh, you end up walking the earth mm -hmm. and learning stuff. And that's the time when you can get in touch with people before you go to your next, um, uh, level, you know, dimension. Yes. Let, let, let's just say, well, obviously we, we don't know, we haven't got a clue, but let's just say that we are on this dimension and we go to another dimension. And once you go to that other dimension, you're not, you're not here anymore. So you're not in touch, but th there's this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's very kind in of between maybe, phase or whatever, maybe, maybe yeah. vampirish type yeah. thing, but, uh, and I don't know, look, I don't know. I'm, no. I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up, but no. I'm, but it is something I've ha I've talked to a few people about and they said, yeah, well, but, but you know, isn't that weird that for about a year or so, you know, Michael was sort of in touch with people and then he disappeared. Like I felt he, that he was around often for about a year or two after. And then, then he, he's, you know, he's still in my memory and I still love him and I still remember him. But, he, but anyway, so it's really, really interesting, that whole Thanks thing. Thanks for sharing and so, that. So, mm. yeah, oh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty strong thing mm. for me. I haven't, I've, I certainly not haven't had another experience like that, yeah. but, but talking with Richard about it, he said it, that, that other people, that he'd interviewed and, and it isn't really in the movie mystify because it's a whole other angle and there's so much to fit in that movie mm -hmm. i mean I, th I honestly i think mystify is one of the most extraordinary films and let alone documentaries yeah, i've ever seen an amazing job didn't it's he? just yeah. great yeah. it's so good well, that's where we met <laughs> that's where there you, you go and the, yeah i met at the, the opening of that three years ago but um mm. which was very very um sort of erudite and open, uh, you know, maybe six, eight weeks ago when he came on our program. And I think that what we liked about the the, the show, um, if I call it that or the movie, was that it corrected a lot of uh, ills and, you know, in yeah. the window. Um, and it gave yeah. some perspective. And I think a lot of people didn't know about Michael's injury. And because he was such an aspirational, like women wanted him, men wanted to be him. I mean, there's very few people in the world that a guy – you know, for our manliness, want to be like. And he was one of them. So to think that he could commit suicide was sort of unfathomable. Yeah, um, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't ring true to anybody I know no. at the time. We were all like, oh no, it was an accident. And, you know, yeah. then there was obviously the other story was that yes. it was some kind of sexual thing. And he was very sexual. Mm. There's, you know, every, everybody knows that. So we, we all thought, oh, that's what it was. Because R Richard, to me, in the world, Richard is, the most knowledgeable person about it all because because he did all these interviews you know with with Michelle in, in particular and I mean Michelle you know uh, Michelle's one of my best friends from back then as well and I you know I just can't I feel oh, God, what she, went what she must mm. have gone through because you know she had that like, the, you know the phone call and all yeah. and and but but the thing is that you, you can kind of put two and two together in the end you, you know he mm. lost his taste and smell his life you know and he was on all these really awful kind of antidepressants I mean antidepressants and he wasn't are pretty taking them days. right yeah no and he was mixing them mm. with everything else mm. <laughs> you know so yeah and he was you know men's health men's health was not a uh, an open transparent thing these days yeah. it was a pre-internet phase and you know, a lot of people as guys to each other back in that era were like, well, you know, we're all okay, the male bravado thing. And he was such a positive, like, I don't want to burden you type person. Mm -hmm. I think that's the signs were there for everybody. But maybe the, um, you know, the perception that there really was a problem wasn't sort of as appreciated. And it wasn't anyone's fault. Mm -hmm. It's just that men are good at concealing. And um, back then he 
was you know such a generous soul. I think the, you know one of the ways I think you measure people in life is is your friend friendship network. And you know Nick Cave. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's him and yourself almost a bit like the six degrees of separation. I mean, you know, he was Nick one of Nick Cave's closest confidants. You know, um, Nick Egan, I guess mm-hmm. who you know. Um, he had such a network of people and likes his been, Nicks. It's all the Nicks. <laughs> the collective Nicks. The collective There's no doubt Nicks. about it. <laughs> This is David from Derby. Hi, this is Katie from England. G'day, it's Paul from Sydney. Hi, this is Ella from the Netherlands. This is Dr. Jim and that's a wrap. Well, how good was that? I really enjoyed um, listening to his stories. My goodness. So I didn't realise he'd been around for so long, 40 odd years, and he's been, you know, still making all this music. What part did you like? Did you like hearing about the fact that, you know, all those fantastic stories with Michael on the couch and the massage? Oh, my goodness me. Michael visiting him. Well, what I, what I was excited about is that I love the fact that a sort of 21-year-old producer from the UK got a chance mm-hmm. to do something for a, a, a very famous Australian band at that point, which was Midnight Oil, and then that led to the models, which led to meeting Michael and Inexcess. And I just love the fact that opportunities for young people early in their career paved the way for a fantastic career thereafter. And when we looked at his CV, there's just no duds on there. There's just no one he's worked with. I look and go, oh my I god, know. shit. There's a there's a there's a Bon Jovi retrospective on there, or there's a Nickelback collective yeah. uh, greatest hits. There's nothing on there which yeah. which makes us cringe. So I think that's a credit, and and also his enthusiasm and honesty today was great. Yeah. The fact that, you know, he started as an assistant before he was even 20 as a like, yeah. punk, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like skinny little bean. And then, yeah. yeah, just opportunity happened and he just lifted yeah. off. And the fact that he's good friends with all these people as well and he's yeah. got his connection with Australia. Yeah. yeah. I, I Thank you, Nick, for coming on. And I can't wait for everyone to hear next week. So, yeah, was, yeah so... I hope you've enjoyed this week. It's well, been thought, different. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I thought just, just to help educate some of our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the bands he's worked with, we'd go out with a little bit of a, a, a triple medley today um, in honour of Nick because his work uh, before working with NXS and working with NXS is, is still seminal in this country. The songs still get played every day. So I thought we would go out with a, a little snippet of Midnight Oil's, um, one of their most famous songs, mm-hmm. uh, which is Power and the Passion. Oh, great. Uh, we will, we will then flip in, uh, and it's got one of these great lines, better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Um, we'll then flip into I Hear Motion from The Models, uh, which was a great song and probably the first time they came to the mainstream's attention. And I thought we would then go out with a true in excess song, one that I'm sure the deep dive listeners would love. We'll go out with a little bit of Johnson's Aeroplane at the uh, end from The yeah. Swing. Cool. So a little maybe five-minute exit out today, B, with those three would be a great little uh, little sampler for our listeners and an honouring of Nick. Um, so a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody. So
All areas with Hayden and B. 